0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: We have this basic activity where you set a goal. So you're trying to do something that you can't do and you have a practice activity that you can kind of repeatedly apply so you can kind of explore different ways in which you can actually now achieve this goal that you've set. And if a teacher has now been able to identify this as a suitable change for you, then we call that deliberate practice. I'm Srini Rao, and this
0: is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be.
1: Anders, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, it's my pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you.
0: Yeah, likewise. So, you know, I uh, was very, very thrilled to find that you had written a book, um, since you literally are are the one who coined the term deliberate practice, which has made its way into nearly every social science book that I have ever read uh, about how to improve performance in something. And every one of our listeners probably is curious about, you know, what it is they can be doing to improve their performance in, you know, whatever area they're trying to become experts in. But before we get there, Um, I want to start by asking, what extracurricular activities did you participate in as a child? And um, what role did those extracurricular activities have in your interest in this area of, of, you know, peak performance and expertise?
1: Well, I think that pretty much early on, uh, I remember my my parents went to church. um, And I remember that that was one of my kind of challenges sitting there for an hour and a half and and then coming up with little mental games that I was playing with myself to kind of be able to uh, endure certain portions of, of these services. And I think in general, you know, I've been really interested in thinking. And I remember maybe I was in fifth grade or something like that when, when I basically... Uh, kind of decided I didn't want to memorize things. Uh, I felt that was sort of beneath me. Uh, So that meant that, you know, it was hard for me to study history and other things. So what I figured out was that if I go to the library and read one or two books about a historical period, I'm going to get the knowledge that would allow me to answer all the questions that were in the history book without really having to memorize dates. And, and I think that kind of general approach of, of really trying to find ways to understand why things are the way they are as a way of, in some way, deeper sense understanding. You know, I mean, obviously when it comes to foreign language, you know, I, I had to kind of modify that rule and I had to do some memorizing, but I was really trying to keep it at a minimum And I know when I read about things in science, I I often try to understand the historical development and introduction of new concepts and findings. And by basically seeking that out, I think I have a better understanding of what was actually shown. And it also helps me understand it and remember it better.
0: It's it's interesting because... um It seems to me like you figured out what your learning style was at a very early age, and as a result, you know, we were able to perform at a level that maybe you wouldn't have if you hadn't figured out what that learning style was. Uh, why do you think that there is such a sort of um, confusion about what somebody's learning style is? And we have this sort of just gap in academic performance that we see in our education system, because it's not designed to cater to each individual learning style. So I guess, you know, the question is, why did you discover yours? And if you're, you know, having to, to talk to parents who might be listening to this, what would you say to them?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think... I was probably a little bit too self-centered when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, to, to basically wonder why other people were doing it differently. But but I think uh, actually thinking about things, and, and, I, and I guess a little bit, you know, given my parents' commitment here to uh, this, you know, Baptist church, which in Sweden is a sort of a minority church, I think I got into discussions with my, my friends a lot about you know religious issues and stuff like that, and and I think that sort of more or less made me you know feel like I wanted to understand things as well as possible, so I could you know uh, be able to argue in a sort of a logical way, and um, okay. and I guess I didn't worry too much about what what other students were doing. And, and I think, I, I guess I saw it more, you know, that some individuals enjoy reading and thinking and other people don't. But I'm not, and I think even today, I'm not sure that it's so much a matter of that they couldn't do it uh, as they didn't do it. And that once you start on a path, it's going to make... Uh, a lot of things much easier for you than if you basically have not done all this preliminary work that's necessary for you to understand things.
0: Mm. So walk me through from, you know, being this kid in church and and this kid who who deconstructs learning in a very different way to how you end up doing this work that you have done uh, around, um, you know, the science of expertise. Like, How do you go from where you were at there to where you're at now?
1: Well, you know, I had a period when I was sort of looking for science as a way here of giving me confidence and certainty, you know, as I moved away from at least actively participating in, in, in this church. So I had a period when I really wanted to be a nuclear physicist because that seemed to me to be where the frontier was. And as I basically went through high school, I think I started becoming much more interested in in psychology and and basically uh, that perspective of really trying to understand thinking rather than, and and also, I I think as things developed, it became clearer and clearer to me that, you know, that was sort of a restricted research domain, and I guess I didn't see uh, as clearly the implications here of understanding nuclear physics better, what that actually would you know, imply for how I and other people would lead their lives. Uh, so basically, I, I kind of started with psychology, and then I actually was a double student um, in, at the Royal Institute of Technology in their uh, uh, branch for nuclear physics, and then I was also in parallel taking courses at the university in psychology. And after a couple of years of doing that, I sort of switched over 100% to psychology. And and I guess that's pretty much where I've been doing research now and thinking uh, for the last, you know, close to 50 years.
0: Wow. Okay. Do, do you remember the earliest sort of um – inkling that this was going to be your area of research, like that you were going to study how people become expert performers? I mean, because that's really kind of what you're known for, right? I mean, more or less, I, I to me, the word deliberate practice and the name Anders Ericsson are synonymous at this point.
1: Well, you know, I, I think it was more that trying to understand my own thinking and, and understand how I could improve. Uh, so basically, in the my dissertation was essentially on how to solve a relatively childlike problem, a puzzle, and having adults do that, and then look at the individual differences in their thinking and how knowing more about what they were really thinking, because I kind of introduced, not I, in Sweden anyway, maybe I introduced that method of having people think out loud while they were solving problems, you know, basically using a method uh, pretty much developed by Newell and Simon uh, in the United States. So, so I think basically there's this next step, uh, which happened when I was a postdoctoral fellow in the United States working with Herbert Simon and Bill Chase. That, that's when I really had this chance of really looking at the effects of training, uh, not just describing thinking, but really focusing in on how thinking can be changed through training when we started these uh, experiments on taking a regular college student and just seeing what the effects of practice on that student would be in terms of his performance. Mm
0: Well, I I think that makes a a perfect segue to really kind of do a a very deep dive into the concept of deliberate practice. Because I think, you know, like we've heard it kind of touched on by so many people. And, and, you know, there's probably myths about it that we're unfamiliar with. I know I made reference to it in my own book. Uh, You know, as a surfer, I, I realized that somehow just this immersive experience of surfing at the age of 30, like I was, you know, unknowingly immersing myself in a a form of deliberate practice. But um, I let's, you know, I think the the place I want to start really is by defining what deliberate practice is, Uh, because, you know, we've had uh, Jeff Colvin here, we've had uh, Dan Coyle here. And, you know, I've talked extensively with both of them about this, but I I really, you know, I'd love to have you define specifically what it is. And then um, let's start looking at through the lens of looking at it through the lens of a few different uh, areas in which we can train it.
1: So, so I think what I realized early was, you know, that practice and basically learning are not the same activities for all people in all situations. And that I think was really uh, a little bit later on when we uh, did our research here on the musicians, uh, the violinists at this International Music Academy in Berlin. That, I guess, is when we really were forced here to develop a new concept of learning. Because what we found after doing interviews and and collecting information about what these individuals were basically engaging in during their full-time activities here at the uh, uh, Music Academy, we found that there was one activity that stood out, and that was when they were actually engaged in training. Uh, So they were basically working on goals that their music teacher had actually given them and then they were spending individual time not trying to achieve these improvement goals and then you know they would see their teacher pretty much once a week uh, so that cycle of actually be given goals focusing in on trying to attain them with the help here of the teacher describing what kind of practice activities would be particularly suitable for improving this particular change uh, that, that basically was assigned for that week. So there we have like two things. We have this basic activity where you set a goal. So you're trying to do something that you can't do and you have a practice activity that you can kind of repeatedly apply so you can kind of explore different ways in which you can actually now achieve this goal that you've set. And if a teacher has now been able to identify this as a suitable change for you, then we call that deliberate practice. So it basically points out here that the biggest difference from when people actually go out and practice, you know, they go out and play with their friends or they maybe, you know, play golf with some of their colleagues We call basically that practice because you may try to do your best, but you're really not trying to improve a particular aspect of your game. And that is kind of what we're arguing purposeful practice. That is when you're committing to try to make a change. So let's assume here that, you know, you you basically miss a backhand volley or something during a doubles game. You're not going to be able to actually improve that as long as the game is going on. But imagine that you actually go to a coach or a friend who can now actually allow you to prepare for the backhand volley. And now you can basically be all set up. You can work on your fundamentals. And eventually, once you've put down now your fundamental backhand stroke, you can now set up increasingly more complex situations. And eventually embed this in normal rallying. And the argument is that, you know, one or two hours of that type of training on your backhand is going to change the backhand so much more than maybe several years or even decades of just playing with your friends.
0: Mm, okay. Okay. Um, this raises numerous questions. And I, I think for me, it, it kind of makes me want to go back to sort of early developmental years of kids. Because, I, you know, I asked Dan Coyle about this. And I said, you know, Dan, when I when I read books like this, uh, when I hear about these kinds of things, I, I can't help but think, wow, what a wasted sort of youth I had, you know, screwing around doing nothing. I mean, I played the tuba for 13 years. And, you know, I probably got a lot of ideas about practice from that. But Dan said something really interesting to me that I'm very curious to hear your perspective. He said, yeah, he said, you know, that's, that's immediately, you know, most people read outliers and they think, okay, I got to go get my kid ready and, and put him into whatever it is for 10,000 hours so he can become, you know, an outlier. And he said, you know, often if you look at sort of top performers across multiple fields, they've been exposed to a wide variety of things um, throughout their life before they found this thing. So I, I'm just curious, you know, like what role does um, – what role does intrinsic motivation uh, to accomplish these kinds of things play in all of this? And uh, what, what I mean, what is your thought on, on Dan's comment about, you know, parents who immediately think and, and my thought on, oh, you know, I wish I had figured out what I could have put 10,000 hours into the moment I was in high school?
1: Well, I, my sense is that once you look at people who are exceptionally successful, it becomes very clear, you know, that one of the key things is finding a way here where you're really engaged and in control of your learning process. And I think there is a fair amount of evidence showing that a lot of music prodigies never succeed as adult musicians. And the argument is that many of their parents kind of pushed them and more or less coddled them into more or less doing things which allowed them now to reach a technical proficiency but they didn't help them develop that independence uh, that basically is required now to really provide a musical interpretation and, and actually doing something that adults and, and other individuals would really feel is a creative you know music uh, performance that will move them. So my argument is that the best thing is actually working backwards. So if you know what it is that Basically, characterizes people who make an extreme contribution, and then actually see at what are the representations and the knowledge and skills that they acquired, and at which point were you actually providing them with enough sort of mental representations that they could take over a lot of the learning by themselves. Because I think that, you know, is that key phase where, you know, the parent is not going to be able to tell the kid, you know, how to become an exceptional music performer because you can't just duplicate somebody else. You really need to be able to find what is it that you uniquely can contribute that basically people then will, you know, appreciate and and give you credit for. Mm -hmm. So I personally think it's fine you know, to introduce kids early on. And I think it's in some ways much better that parents try to find something that they and the child enjoy doing because then the parent can actually get the special time with the child and they can, even if the child is seeing a teacher, they will be engaged now in this activity. But it's important here that the parent is really viewing the child as somebody who will gradually take over more and more control over the training, and that may involve deciding that they want to do something else. But my sense is that having had that experience of reaching that individual control is going to be really useful and helpful when you decide to do something else. I think you've learned a lot about what you can actually improve and what it takes to be effective uh, uh, when you're engaging in practice that, at least as a method, generalizes to other domains.
0: Interesting. Okay, so, uh, you know, I, this, you know I, I can't help but um, ask you a question about the way we educate people um, You know, what's interesting to me is, is, you know, looking at all the social science research that I have have done as a byproduct of, of, you know, running this show and and talking to the people I've talked to is we don't really educate people to become peak performers. Like we're not teaching people how to incorporate deliberate practice in the way they're educated through our school system. And yet what we see as a byproduct is outliers. So I'm just curious, why is it that this isn't the standard way of doing things? in education or in any form of training? Because, you know, like, you look at the corporate world, I remember Jeff Colvin's book opens with the fact that this is not how you're trained to work. He said, in fact, most working environments are set up not to turn, turn people into expert performers.
1: Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And, and I think, um, in a couple of places, when I've been giving talks, I really point to you know, the value of having parents that believe in their children and are willing now to kind of help them, you know, develop some kind of reasonable level of ability in a domain to give them that sense of what they actually are able to control uh, themselves. And, and I think it's kind of interesting, I and mean, we do talk about it as a dark side of talent, you know, all these individuals who have been told, you know, that they can't sing or they can't draw or, you know, they can't do this and that. And then basically, uh, you know, especially when it comes to singing, uh, you may have had a really kind of awful experience here with somebody, you know, giving you negative feedback when you were singing. And, and from that point on, you never try it again. Uh, I guess we talk in the book here about some people who in their adulthood, actually seek out music teachers and now having a second chance here at a career of singing and talking to these teachers, you know, they're convinced that anyone can improve their performance, uh, you know, in, in a dramatic way. And I think that it is kind of amazing that, that instead of encouraging children to pursue and, and actually understand now what the real limiting factors are, because once you look into a domain like drawing or singing and understand now the long extended process by which you kind of refine your skills, now that becomes the real sort of constraint here on how far uh, you're going to be able to get. Um, and, and most people, you know, they have limits on time, And we also know that if you're going to engage and deliver practice, you need to be able to be 100% focused. And I I believe the evidence indicates that you have about four or five hours a day when you can actually, uh, you know, be able to be that concentrated. So then it's up to you to decide what are the things that you prioritize where you want to basically expend that valuable time. Mm
0: -hmm. So that raises um, another question. I mean, you talked about the idea of, you know, like across the board, you could not find any sort of example of innate sort of inborn talent. And, you know, I have two people here that had a really interesting perspective on this. One was uh, Justine Musk, uh, who is Elon Musk's ex-wife, and she had written a piece about extreme success, like success at the level that, you know, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs – uh, achieve and, and we did an entire chat about the psychology of visionaries. And then, you know, I had another mentor here and, you know, we talked about people like that and he said, you know, his perspective was you cannot train that. That is something that is innate and that you are born with. And so I, you know, I can't help but ask you that question, given the perspective that you've had, like are are there people like an Elon Musk or Steve Jobs? Is that just some sort of exception to the norm? Because that's like at another level from what we look at when we consider expertise. Um, so I, I'm very curious, you know, like what 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 does deliberate practice and your research reveal about sort of visionary thinkers like this?
1: Well, you know, I think this is a really interesting and, and difficult situation. Now, I don't know uh, either... Uh, Steve Jobs or, or Elon Musk, personally, uh, the closest I've gotten to somebody who, by other people, were viewed as somebody truly extraordinary, was Herbert Simon, who got the Nobel, Nobel Prize and you know contributed to you know at least four or five different scientific domains. Now, when I talked to him, he pretty much said you know that. He had one major idea, and that idea was then kind of explored in all these uh, different academic domains. Uh, So that raises the question, what is it that these individuals did that couldn't have been done by somebody else? Uh, Now, obviously, it wasn't done by somebody else, but the issue is, could it have been done by somebody else? And when we look at, you know, science and a lot of other domains, I think it becomes clear that it could have been done by somebody else, but it wasn't. And so that makes the question a little bit different. And and I, from the little I know about Steve Jobs, it seems like, you know, he was prioritizing activities and time in a way that, is quite different from the vast majority of people. So rather than, you know, arguing that there has to be something innately different, my question would be, can we identify more specifically what that difference was and why other people could not have basically done the kinds of things that they did uh, I mean, if if we basically think here that, you know, you have certain kinds of opportunities and some people, depending on earlier choices, are at the right place at the right time with the right kind of skills and then are now given sort of a new path uh, that basically very few people were on parallel paths. So it's quite different from sports, you know, where everyone is doing the same task, and basically we can now compare the performance uh, between the different people competing in the same event. Hmm. Okay, so one other
0: question about this um, is age, Uh, and so two questions come from this, sort of what is the impact of deliberate practice on the brain, like what has your research revealed about that, and then what is the impact of our age in the ability or on the ability to improve at a particular craft as we practice it.
3: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
2: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber. Simpler email marketing. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
3: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Every year, one thing is always predictable postage costs go up. We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Again, great questions. Uh, I think, you know, in the book we point out, you know, some of the kind of developmentally sensitive periods when it seems that you practice can actually tweak your development in a certain direction. And if you If you don't engage in practice during that age period, uh, then basically you're kind of locked in. Uh, You can't now influence. And and, uh, several of these things are linked to the calcification of bones that happens sometime between ages 8 and 12. And during that time, you can actually change the, the joints such that basically ballet dancers have their feet you know, going outwards in the resting position. Uh, baseball pitchers are able to move their arm back further and thereby improving the ability of, for them to throw. There's evidence now f- using brain imaging suggesting here that you can actually build myelin in various parts of the brains in a way that seems to be dependent on practice at different ages. I think we're just at the beginning of understanding, you know, what changes can be done and will result from practice at earlier ages. Uh, But I guess in the most of the book, we basically make the point that looking at adults who try to acquire new skills, they seem to be able to do remarkable things. And and I guess we talk about improving your memory skills, uh, and, and the cab drivers in London who acquire you know, this map of some over 20,000 streets, so they can basically be able to be given an arbitrary starting point and then plan the most efficient path to a destination. My belief is that obviously at some age point, uh, you basically are going to have restrictions, but what is remarkable to me from our research is that if you maintain practice, uh, we showed that by looking at pianists, you can actually preserve uh, basically this superior performance in the domain where you really care about, in this case, you know the pianists were interested in being able to execute very rapid music sequences. But again, I think it's sort of surprising if people don't really, if they assume that it's not possible to sustain your performance as kind of an, uh, you know, when you get in your 50s and 60s, well, then we're never going to see it because our argument is that given that practice is not something that people enjoy for its own sake, it's something that you do in order to earn kind of a higher level of performance, people are not going to engage in it unless they have that. Uh, you know, they're convinced that this type of practice is going to make a difference.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So
0: you know, one of the things I knew you emphasize quite a bit is the role of teachers uh, something that I also, you know, uh, talked extensively about in my own book it, and the role that mentors have, have had on, you know, our growth here at, at unmistakable creative and everything that I've done, like the, the difference a really good teacher makes, you know, in the process of writing a book, I, I got to work with a, a coach who had done multiple books for, you know, well-known authors. And I mean, the difference in the caliber of work that was produced as a byproduct of working with her was night and day. I mean, well, you know, worth more than every penny that I had to pay her. Um, So I am just, you know, kind of curious, you know, what, what is the role of teachers? Is it because we can't see our weaknesses, you know, and what, what other roles do teachers play in this process?
1: Well, I mean, if you view uh, the acquisition of superior performance as, you know, that you're like building a house, there are a couple of problems with that. One is that if you're going to build a big house, you need to have a foundation that can support a house that is vastly more sophisticated than basically your initial performance might suggest. So in music, and I think in sports, if you acquire the correct fundamentals, that's going to really simplify the process that you have to engage in when you reach higher levels. And that's impossible, I think, for an adolescent or a child to really anticipate what is it that they need to basically have as foundations to be able to reach now the very higher levels that they're going to acquire in 10, 15 years. And I also, I think, when it comes to decisions here about what is it that you're gonna be correcting, and how are you going to correct it if you have a teacher who has worked with people reaching the highest level of performance, maybe even by themselves, they will have a much better understanding of what are the appropriate sequencing of your training activities that ultimately will you know give you get you to the place uh where you want to go okay so.
0: I want to take this and dissect it through a few practical lenses uh, for my own selfish reasons. Uh, first, um, as a writer uh, who spends, you know, almost every day writing, um, I'd like to talk about, you know, how I could take the concept of, of practice and improve on it. Like beyond what I do, as, you know, which is my daily practice of writing a thousand words a day, um, you know, where where can I tweak this? and tweak my entire process for significant improvement. Um, and then I want to look at it through the lens of interviews and what we do here on the podcast. Like how could I incorporate deliberate practice into that? And then of course, I'm going to ask you about surfing because I'm a surfer and I want to become a better surfer. So let's start with the writing process.
1: Well, you know, I think that is very interesting. And, and in some ways uh, my belief is that, that by specializing, so deciding uh, what type of writing products you want to do, uh, I think is a very kind of important. And it, it's not like you have to be just one thing, but I think, and, and that's actually one of the advice that I got as a scientist when I came to Carnegie Mellon as a postdoctoral fellow. Uh, Bill Chase told me that you need, if you're going to be successful, you need to basically find, a way that people would think of you as an expert that they can describe with, say, one sentence. And and I think my initial description was, you know, that I had worked on this book with Herb Simon on basically having people think out loud. So that was kind of one thing that I tried to become the world's most informed person about. and And then I guess I did the work with Bill Chase here on training memory, Uh, so that would be now a second piece where I also try to read up and become a real expert on. So Now, going back to writing, I think if you could define now what kind of products you would like to do, and you could name other individuals who you think actually have created products that you feel are really admirable, then I think that provides you Now, ideally, if these individuals are alive, uh, conceivably, you could ask them to comment on what you're writing. Uh, And I personally believe, you know, I'm not a writing expert, uh, but Robert Poole, my co-author, is. Uh, But when I write, you know, I pretty much go over things 15, 20 times before I find that it gets close to something that I'm happy with. Uh, now Robert seems to be able to somehow, you know, uh, think through things, and then once he starts writing, he doesn't need to go through as many revisions. But but anyway, I think that is the closest that I know to kind of identify your goals, and then, you know, analyze and and, and maybe even approach people who produce these products uh, that would actually help you now to see. And understand how you can master the techniques that these other individuals, uh, you know, so successfully had implemented.
0: So what about interviews? Um, you know, at this point, I mean, I'm having done 700 of them, but I, I'm never quite satisfied because I always I, I think my great fear is that I'm going to plateau. And I, I usually want to make sure that, you know anything I created last year is significantly worse than what I've de- worked on this year. Um, and I, I'm just curious, you know, if you were, if, if I said, hey, you know, I want to take this entire concept of deliberate practice and apply it to my craft as an interviewer, what would I do?
1: So, so then I think I'm going to have to ask you a question. Sure. So what would you be the basically the ultimate feedback that you could get uh, that in some sense would define now basically – either that you just improved from one year to the next, but ideally also more specifically, what is it that you were doing better this last year from previous years? And is there something that about your interviews where you can identify things that are better than other portions? Uh, So so I guess that idea of feedback uh, from basically a source that you can't really influence by smiling at them or paying them or treating them better but basically something that is out there that in some ways measures what it is that you wanted to achieve
0: okay um Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if if somebody had had commented on one section, as far as what we've changed, you know, uh, we I think sometime probably about three months, two months back, we said, okay, we're, you know, the opening question is not what we want to start with, rather than give give people have people give their elevator pitch, let's change the opening question to something a bit more provocative and interesting. So we can get to a place of a, a deeper, richer conversation faster. So that's one little tweak. Um, And then, you know, I I think one of the things I I often do is I will go back and sort of look back, listen and and think about questions that I should have asked or uh, think about things that came up as threads for me that I didn't chase down during the interview that I wish I had asked about.
1: Well, I mean, one interesting question would be if if you and I were to do this 10 times, Mm -hmm. how do you think that the 10th time we would do this interview would change? If, if now your sole purpose here is actually having something that you're going to release. Mm. Uh, because it seems to me that that idea here of being able to do things, you know, again and again. And I guess sometimes, like like a surgeon, you know, I mean, you can't do 10 surgeries <laughs> yeah. in the same patient. Yeah. So what they tend to do is to spend, you know, several hours kind of reviewing everything they know about the patient so they can actually mentally go through what the surgery is going to be like uh-huh. and then they can identify you know potential problems or things that they don't know and then they generate contingency plans and so once they actually do the surgery they're really prepared i'm not sure whether you would ever be able to know an individual well enough that you would be able to kind of anticipate those kinds of developments. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe, you know, the ideal interview is allowing, asking people questions. So you're really more like an instrument to help them uh, communicate with people as opposed to that you're sort of the conductor here of what is happening. But anyway, I, I think that's, Fascinating, and and thinking about how you can actually measure it, and if you had that opportunity of doing an interview with the same person several times, how would that be different? Hmm.
0: Well, I have had one uh, opportunity to interview somebody that we had here, and we did six takes before we got it right because neither of us were satisfied with how it was turning out.
1: But but analyzing that would seem to me to provide now really. Useful, interesting information, um, and I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's what. I don't know how many people would sign up here for doing six <laughs> probably interviews. not many. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and maybe you wouldn't even find the time to do it either. But but I think that idea here of almost making thought experiments about what would be ideal, and and I know that when we're actually looking at training surgeons, you know, we're actually taking videotapes from surgeries and then stop them and then basically ask you know the individual who hasn't done the surgery you know well how would you handle this situation and then basically we can show what happened and they can in a sense here now you know get feedback about if there would have been a problem with the way that they propose to address and act in that situation
0: hmm. okay um I want to wrap this by talking about surfing specifically, uh, because it's a, it's a huge part of my life. Uh, and you know, it's taught me a world of things about practice and persistence and consistency that I I, could, I don't think I would have learned any other way, but I'm 38 years old and I started when I was 30. A lot of people start surfing, especially when you look at the pros or the people who surf like 60, 70 foot waves. Like I look at that and I think, okay, you know what? That's just not going to happen in my lifetime because I don't have a death wish, Um, Like, honestly, to me, the the downside of that is death. So I I guess the question is, you know, how do I take something like surfing, which is a physical skill, or am I going to reach an an inevitable limit based on age and the fact that I don't have the time to put in the kind of practice that is necessary to get to sort of another level, like going from surfing six-foot days comfortably to surfing 10-foot days comfortably? Um, you know, what's involved in that. And of course, you know, there's a psychological aspect to this too, because, you know, I I think one of the bigger things about surfing bigger waves um, is being able to handle the hold down when you get pounded, when you're not in the right spot, like you get held underwater by a massive wave, and that's terrifying. So I'm just curious, you know, like if we were to look at surfing through the lens of deliberate practice, you know, where would we begin?
1: Well, again, I I think I would almost start with a question, What is it that you would like to accomplish? And is it because you want to have the experience of doing certain things that are, you know, completely within the range here of of basically what you can do and that you feel comfortable doing? Because I think that's one of the things that I've learned here. A lot of people doing things, you know, uh, involving motor skills, they basically work a lot on how to recover from problems so if you're trying to stand you know with your uh, on your hands uh, do a handstand without support one of the things that actually i think a good teacher would do is to work on you being able to absorb uh, basically falling so in a sense here it's kind of like a pyramid where you're actually in some ways you know guarding yourself for all the bad things that can happen and, and, and I think that would, you know, basically get into these issues here of your ability now to be able to judge whether you would actually be taken over by a wave that would be greater than you basically feel comfortable trying to master or that you're able to anticipate it well enough that you will be able to do something uh, to avoid it. Uh, now, Now, I don't really know that much about surfing so it's it's obviously going to be quite general here what i can say but i i think what if i were you i think i would be more interested in the experience that you can actually generate by creating now the kind of ideal environments in which you can actually have that sense of stretching yourself a little bit but not so much that you will break right and and i think that is something that we see in a lot of domain, people actually trying so hard to improve that they will actually break or they will train when they don't have full concentration, which will lead them now to basically have some accident or injury that may actually change the trajectory of their careers. So thinking of it in those terms, I think actually helps people finding that sweet spot where they are able now to discover new things, but they do it in a way where they uh, are really well protected against any dangers. Hmm. All right,
0: so two final questions for you. Um, you know, I, I remember you talked, I think you dedicated quite a big section of the book to this whole 10,000 hour idea, right? Because you know Malcolm popularized it with outliers and of course it's been quoted in book after book and I'm sure I mentioned it in my book only to, to have read your book and thought, shit, too late to revise that now. Uh, so, uh, I you know, I, I think I'd, I'd love for you to kind of demystify that for us because, it, you know, it seems to be that everybody... I mean, and it makes a very nice sort of catchy thing, 10,000 hours.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and I think, you know, the first point is that there's nothing magical about 10,000 hours, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned. There's no magical transition once you pass that limit. Now, what I do think that... You know, the fact that it takes thousands of hours for any individual, even under the optimal practice circumstances, whether they are the most talented or not, to actually reach the world-class international level. That, I think, is very helpful. And once we talk about what are these physiological changes that are really going through and that are necessary for somebody to become a long-distance endurance runner, Then I think it helps people see that if they are aiming now for a very high level and they have the right kind of teacher that can actually guide them, there's no shortcut. There's basically a long process. Now, when I estimated the number of hours that somebody would need to spend to win an international piano competition, I think I came up with estimates of 20, 25,000 hours of basically solitary practice. But I think the, the most important thing is that it's not the engagement, it's not the number of hours that you put in. So driving for 10,000 hours doesn't make you, you know, an exceptional driver. Walking for 10,000 hours doesn't make you, you know, competitive in walking. It's basically has to be the time that you spend in purposeful or in deliberate practice where you really intentionally trying to change something, where you actually pick out that time of the day when you can give 100% effort and find a training activity that you can repeat and gradually refine. So, you know, like with most things that are popular, this idea that if you just stick, in, stick to something long enough, you will become an expert, that's a popular idea, but unfortunately there's really no evidence for it.
0: All right, so I have one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Could could
1: you rephrase that question? Yeah. Um,
0: What do you think it is that makes somebody or something
1: unmistakable? Unmistakable. I'm not totally sure. Maybe, you know, I'm a Swedish, uh, (laughs) so, so maybe I'm...
0: Okay, so do you want me to do, how, you tell you how I define unmistakable?
1: Yeah, that, that would be help. helpful.
0: Okay, so I define unmistakable as something so distinctive, so unique, that nobody else could have done it but you. Um, basically, you can take one look at it, and it can't be mistaken for something that somebody else could have done.
1: And, and that's probably where I would argue that I don't know that there exists anything. Now, once you start asking the question, who would be the first to do it? Mm-hmm. That's a different question than once you've seen somebody do it, would you actually find somebody else who would be able to replicate it? And, and I guess when I've looked at these, uh, even when it comes to, you know, faking paintings and playing music that people thought only a given person could do, or as we see with sports records that are now, you know, kind of broken, The fact that somebody did it first is quite different from the fact that nobody with the appropriate training would be able to do it again once they know what the, uh, basically, achievement was.
0: Hmm. Well, this has been just fascinating and amazing as I I kind of expected it would be. Uh, So where where can uh, people learn more about you? Well,
1: if if, if they want to, you know, look at the book. I think that's probably the the place where I think you know we've done the best job here of describing some of the ideas. And uh, there's also a website that Robert Poole is a kind of uh, organizing and, and Facebook and Twitter accounts. Uh, and the website is the uh, I mean Peak the Book as one word dot com.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll we'll be sure to link all of that uh, up in the show notes. Uh, And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your, your insights and your story with our listeners. This has been just fascinating.
1: Well, I really enjoyed talking to you and I would love to actually hear more of your reactions because I think, you know, finding people who are really thoughtful is the most valuable experience that I have as a scientist, you know, that would that sort of stimulates me to think a little bit deeper and improve my thinking a little bit more. Uh, so, so if you have some comments or think it would be useful maybe just to have an informal conversation, uh, I think I would really enjoy that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.
2: For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300.
3: Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.
2: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel?